Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So over at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, Richard Oksher and Lucy Dedayan study taxes. And when people ask them what they do for a living, this is sort of how it goes. Well, the first thought is always like, oh, you do income taxes. Can you do my income taxes? No, no, <laughs> that's not what I do. Yeah, I start with like I work in tax policy. And when I get blank stares, I tell, oh, no, I do the fun stuff. I, I do cigarettes and gambling and marijuana and booze. So that's more interesting. When you get their attention, what do your friends say then, Richard? Then they actually want to talk because I do think that income taxes are inherently opaque. But most of my friends have gone to the store and bought alcohol and noticed that it costs a little bit more because there's a tax in there. Or they've heard about marijuana taxes. Somehow that's come into their news feed ahead of the state and local tax deduction. So that's right. We're talking taxes this week. Again, I know. But wait, it's not what you think. We're talking about quote unquote sin taxes. That's right. Taxes on things like smoking. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. And drinking. I don't care if the sun don't shine. I do my drinking in the evening time when I... And don't forget gambling. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every... And what about... Lucy says sin taxes go way back in history to the early days of America. Actually, it was... Adam Smith, who said that this whiskey, sugar, and tobacco are uh, luxury items and they need to be taxed. So shortly after, Alexander Hamilton in 1791 introduced the tax on alcohol. Wait, did she say Alexander Hamilton? Where have I heard of that guy recently? Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Let's have another round tonight. Raise a glass to freedom. So first, we had introduction of tax on alcohol, the so-called whiskey tax in 1791. Then 1862, we have the alcohol and tobacco tax. Then comes to early 1900s, and we have the legalization and taxation of the modern-day gambling around 1931. Nevada became the first state to introduce casinos and to tax casinos. The term sin tax covers a broad array of taxes on items and activities beyond just smoking, drinking, and gambling. It now includes things like marijuana, e-cigarettes, soda, opioids, even plastic bags. Well, if you look at how much, in terms of how much revenue they raise, top five would be lottery, alcohol, tobacco, recreational marijuana. But there are new kinds of sin taxes coming into the field like soda tax or a prescription opioid tax. New York became the first state to introduce tax on prescription opioids. And don't forget sports betting. Last year, the Supreme Court allowed states to expand the legalization of sports betting. And this recent Super Bowl Sunday was expected to be the biggest ever for business. Because sports play such a huge role in our society, they know that the legalization of sports betting is going to bring a whole new wave of consumers into the market. 
But just how are these types of taxes different from other types of taxation? Richard's going to talk us through an example. Say you're out shopping over the weekend and you went to the store and you bought some new books and you bought a new pair of sneakers. You paid tax on that, a sales tax, most likely. And you did that because the government is trying to raise revenue. It's not a book tax. It's not a shoe tax. It's not an education tax. It's not a health tax. It's just a way for the government to raise revenue to pay for things like education, healthcare, fire, police protection. But then on the way home, you realized you were running out of gas, so you stopped at a gas station and you paid a tax on that. Now, that was a gas tax. It is specifically on the gas. Now, the government doesn't want to prevent you from buying gas. It's just that we use gas taxes to raise money for roads, bridges, and transit. But let's say while you're at the gas station, you also start to eyeball the cigarettes behind the counter. In a lot of places, you'll notice the cigarettes are relatively expensive. That's because of a cigarette tax. And, you know, this gets to sin tax because it is a different tax because the government isn't just trying to raise revenue. They're not just dedicating it to a source. They want you, the consumer, to pause and think, do I really want to purchase this given how much it costs? And it costs that because the government has inflated the cost with a tax. One reason that the government would tax something like cigarettes, well, it's an admission that there are costs associated with that behavior. You could develop cancer, you could develop health problems, and that's going to, one, affect you, you know, as just a productive member of the community. And if, you can, if you're sick, you can't work. Okay, so that's a cost. And then you go to the hospital, and now this is a cost for the community. Part of the cost is you are paying a part of that future cost that you are creating by your choice. Richard says sin taxes are also different because they're truly noticeable. They're there to raise a red flag. One, one thing with sin taxes is that, you know, uh, a general sales tax you pay after. If you go and you buy a $20 book and you're, there's a 10% sales tax on it, it says $20 on the bookshelf. And when you pay for it, all of a sudden it's $22. You, you, but it, you didn't get that till you got to the register. The cigarettes, the alcohol the tax is built into the price of it because they want you thinking about that cost before you make your purchase. States and localities are experimenting with ways to maximize influence on certain behaviors through taxes. Plastic bags, at least in places like District of Columbia, are designed differently in a way that it's not just a punishment, but it's also the reward. Like you pay tax if you use plastic bag. Or you gain money back if you bring your own back. Oh, and another thing about sin taxes, well, they're super popular among policymakers. Here's Richard on just why lots of states are testing out new approaches. One reason these taxes are popular is because they are taxes on others. You got a budget cap. It's, it's not that big, but it, it's a problem. And, you know, your first idea is like, well... Why don't we raise income taxes or sales tax? Well, because everyone hates raising income taxes and sales taxes. And then someone stands up and goes like, well, what if we build a casino? It's just really appealing for lawmakers who are desperate to find money for services, but don't want to go get in that you know, political fight over raising income or sales taxes. And it's important to remember taxes can be highly specific to states and localities, really any taxing authority. Each sin tax has its own interesting path and history. If you look at the cigarette taxes, states have been continuously raising the tax rate. As a result, we have seen declines in consumption, which is a good thing. On the other hand, we have e-cigarettes, which are type of new product. Minnesota was the first state to actually put a tax on e-cigarettes in 2010. 
When it comes to alcohol taxes, states have been very reluctant to uh, raise the tax rate on alcohol. While each syntax has its own path and story, Richard and Lucy say generally there are two big goals that policymakers have in mind for them. The first is raising revenue, and the second is curbing bad behaviors. But these two goals can sometimes be in contrast with each other. Sometimes we're trying to persuade you to make a different choice. Do you really want to buy those cigarettes? Do you really want to buy that alcohol? But then other times, it's an admission of, yeah, we know you want to play the lottery, and we know you want to go in the casino and gamble, but that has some cost. So some syntaxes are really trying to curb certain behaviors, like smoking, but others don't really want to discourage you from doing something. They just want to raise some cash off of your activities. In fact, taxes on casinos are now considered by the Census Bureau to be an amusement tax. Here's Richard on how states approach taxes on gambling a little bit differently. We, we talked about sin and, and everything gets lumped into here because uh, they're just seen as like, you know, gambling and smoking, drinking, marijuana, you know, oh, OK, we can all put that in the same place. But again, kind of like marijuana, the state does not want its tax to prevent you from doing this. They want you to gamble legally instead of gambling illicitly. So the tax rate is not so exorbitant as to push you away. In fact, states think critically is our rate low enough to make sure you're playing with the legal gambling operator and not going to a bookie or not doing something overseas? They want to entice you. They want to bring you in. So if these taxes are all unique and can have contrasting goals, how do states hit the sweet spot on sin taxes? One thing to keep in mind is that the stronger there is a relationship between the activity and the negative outcome, the easier this is. Smoking cigarettes leads to cancer tax cigarettes so people don't purchase them, smoke, and get cancer. This gets a lot harder on soda and marijuana. Both have negative externalities. Both have issues. But they don't have that one-to-one link. Some people can drink soda and not be at risk of obesity. Some people can smoke marijuana and not have negative health effects. So where do you draw the line? How high do you make it? It becomes a lot harder. When it's, it's a little harder to draw that line is when these questions get murky. And that's when states need to experiment and think through different types of taxes. But Lucy says when states are experimenting with sin taxes, they have to realize that the effects are not static. They'll change in the context of the market over time. States are testing it out to see how much of the market potential is there, how much of the revenue potential is there, what are the behavioral implications of that. We know that the early adopter states go through a steep learning curve. So when thinking about syntaxes, policymakers need to consider a few key things. First, syntaxes bring in significant revenue that makes a real impact. But in the big picture, syntaxes are just a small slice of the total tax revenue pie. Revenues from all syntaxes combined represent less than 5% of state and local government revenues. So even though we always say we are going to raise so much revenue, it has always represented only like really small portion of the state budgets. But Richard wants to remind us even small slices can be hefty. Something to keep in mind, even like, you know, the marijuana taxes we have in Washington, in Colorado, for example, that have been up for a while. I mean, they bring in hundreds of millions of dollars and that money is going to services. It's money the states would not have had if they did not do that. But while your tax on marijuana is in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, your state budget is in the billions. 
It is never going to replace things like an income tax or a sales tax. And so just because, you know, the, the tax might be bringing exactly much revenue as was an estimated, it could be hundreds of millions of dollars. It all could be going to schools. That doesn't mean you've solved education funding. You still might need to raise other taxes to pay for it because of all the other factors that are going into that education budget, which is just exponentially larger than the revenue you get from a syntax. It's again, it's that tens of millions, if maybe even hundreds of millions in a billions of dollars of budget. And none of these are solutions to your funding problems. They're, they're, they're possibly at best contributions to a solution, but you cannot replace income taxes, sales taxes, and property taxes. Those are still going to be you know, the cornerstones, the, the, the foundation of your, of your funding system, your finance system. And another thing to consider, syntax revenue can be pretty volatile. So legislators should be really cautious with how they allocate them. Do not count on the revenues. If you are taxing sin good or sin activity, do not tell that you are going to support education funding from these revenues. Put it in the general fund. And do not count on these revenues because the history shows that the growth over time is not sustainable in seeing goods and services. And the growth in these taxes, in this type of taxes, the growth rate is much, much lower compared to the growth rate in other types of major sources of taxation, whether it's sales tax or income tax. And Richard says year after year, legislators have to keep a close eye on how these taxes are performing and prepared to make some tweaks. In terms of cigarettes, you know, you, you should be upfront that if we're driving up the cost, currently, if you increase cigarette taxes, you increase revenue. But at some point, if you really start decreasing, you know, cigarette consumption, you could begin to reduce revenue. And with marijuana taxes, you could be creating a vo- volatile tax that goes up and down based on the economy, based on what your neighbors are doing. The rule is that you should be very cautious with how you're allocating it. Don't make any one program dependent on it. And two, monitor it. You can't just pass a marijuana tax and say, congratulations, and walk out the door. You got to come back year after year and see, you know, how is this affecting the marijuana market? How is this affecting revenues? Did our neighbors legalize it? Do we need to change how we're doing this? You have to continually monitor this tax. Another key thing legislators should be thinking about is what communities are these taxes hitting the hardest? Most of these taxes, putting aside all the very various ways we can do this. They're all pretty much consumption taxes, and those are inherently regressive. They are going to be a larger burden on lower-income residents and higher-income residents just because you, you both could buy the same amount of cigarettes or alcohol, but that's going to be and you know pay the same amount of tax, but it's going to be a larger burden to a lower-income resident than a higher-income resident. And, and that's a real critique of a lot of these taxes is that you are pushing your tax burden onto your poorest residents. There are some other arguments that you should take into account you shouldn't just slap a label on it and say it's regressive and move on. Like take soda taxes. Not only is it regressive because lower income people, it's, it's a higher percentage of their income, but also they're more, you know, lower income people are more likely to consume soda. But there is a counter argument to this. Part of the point of sin taxes is that they're paternalistic. They represent the government trying to steer people to better behaviors. That said, if the tax is achieving the goals Well, that means the benefits of it are also flowing to that community. If the tax does, in fact, lower consumption and make people healthier, you are having an outsized impact on that community. Further, what are you doing with the revenue? Again, if you have a soda tax and that burden is being placed on low-income residents and you use the revenue to cut taxes for high-income people, yeah, that's a very regressive form of taxation. 
However, if you have a soda tax and you get most of the revenue from low-income people and you feed that money back in by, say, like healthcare programs, expanding Medicaid, childhood education, if, if that's where the money is going, if you're actually adding money to those groups, then, you know, it's, it's a more complex picture. So basically, in sum, policymakers looking for budget solutions need to remember that syntaxes are just one tool in the toolkit. You always need to ask the key policy design questions. So it goes to what are you trying to achieve? What is the goal of your tax? And then the second lesson is, did it achieve your goals? Do you have to change the tax? But then I think more importantly, another question is, is the tax the way you should be getting at this goal? Are there other levers in government that would better get you to your solution? As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, syntaxes go back to the earliest days of America, but they've evolved over time. They now encompass a wide range of items and activities from alcohol and gambling and cigarettes to marijuana and soda and plastic bags. Two, states are the laboratories of democracy, and they're experimenting with a range of syntaxes. Policymakers often think of syntaxes as budget saviors, but the fact is these taxes can have volatile revenue and they don't bring in as much money as income and sales taxes. And three, when implementing syntaxes, policymakers should keep some key things in mind. They need to think about who these taxes are hitting the hardest and the best way to invest that income back into those communities. So that's our show. Thanks again to Richard Oksher and Lucy Dadaya. If you want to do a deep dive into tax revenue data for syntaxes, you can't get that from the Census Bureau, but you can get it from the Tax Policy Center. To learn more, check out our show notes at www.urban.org slash critical value. Big thank you to all you awesome critical value listeners. Please take a second to leave a rating on iTunes. It helps others to find the show. And we're almost up to 200 ratings, y'all. So help us get to the top of that mountain. And if you have any comments or questions, you can always email us at criticalvalueurban.org. Big thank you to producers Katie Smith and Jacinth Jones. And thanks to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.